Welcome to Life Imperative. I'm Scott Lalonde. In today's conversation, I speak with climate educator Dr. Deborah Tillinger. Dr. Tillinger holds a PhD in ocean and climate physics from Columbia University. She works at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and is a performance artist who teaches science informally as Dr. Mermaid. Today we talk about the history of climate research, some of the common myths associated with climate and climate change, and why it's unlikely that science will come up with a single, simple solution to save the Earth's inhabitants. Good morning, Dr. Tillinger. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you. Give me a little bit about uh, your position at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Um, I work at the museum in their Masters of Science Education program, preparing new teachers to teach climate and climate change in New York City. And I also work in professional development for in-service teachers who want to learn more about climate change or oceanography, again, to bring to their classrooms. What I'd like to discuss, uh, on top of a few other things, like your Dr. Mermaid, and again, we can talk about whatever you want, because I think you have tons of interesting things to say and important things. Um, but I, I think, yeah, it was New York Magazine, they came out with this dystopian article about, hey, as bad as you think it is, it's worse. It's so much worse. It's so much worse. And and that is probably true, right? Then It's worse than what most people think. And then you had sort of a lot of rebuttal to that that said, all you're going to do is create this sort of eco-anxiety that is going to make people, you know, sort of shut down. Right. And Sent me that uh, article from the, from, I think it was uh, the Atlantic. Atlantic. Yeah. So what is, what, what is your perspective on a good balance, your own experiences with it? I can um, honestly say I was doing this before it was cool. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's I, it, right? This was, this was the only thing on which I've ever been like, in line with my zeitgeist. I'm like, oh yeah, I got into climate change. Um, yeah, I mean, I God, I guess I took my first climate climate class in around 2000. So that was kind of, again, my, my timing just worked out really yeah. well. Wow. No, that's excellent. Yeah. So when I started, it was this weird thing that a couple of people cared about. I mean, that's not actually true. The history of climate change goes back way further, but I didn't know that. Well, so sometimes when I've got big groups and we do the like climate change is a recent thing, I ask people yeah. what year they think climate change conversations really began. In the U.S., I'll ask which president was first briefed on climate change. Right. That's not fair here. But the answer is that we worked out the science of climate change in 96. Mm. Wait for it. Wait for it. 1896. Oh. <laughs> um, the work by Arrhenius in 1896 um, was remarkably accurate. Right. Science is not that hard. Like, think of all the things that didn't exist in 1896. Absolutely. We had this one. Yeah. Um, and Joseph Fourier, as in if you took calculus at some point, Fourier transforms, Fourier series, that guy, mm -hmm. worked out a lot of it in the 1820s. Right. Wow. Uh, but he was not as definitive. So since we're being conservative, you know, in climate, you can't say anything that's the tiniest bit too much, but you can underestimate and that's okay. Right. Um, so we'll say 1896. Right. So not, not new. And then climate change got linked up with general environmentalism, which then got branded as part of the counterculture. Um, so we definitely have this problem of like climate and environmentalism. And I, I personally don't make it really as an environmentalist. Right. Um, I've in fact been kicked out. Mm. Uh, okay. To be fair, 
I'm not against planting trees, but if you would like to plant trees to combat climate change, you could just as well adopt puppies to combat climate change. Like it's a good thing to do that will make you feel good on the inside and probably has some benefit to the outside world. Right. Great. So what probably has to do with climate change because it doesn't. So, so let's talk about that. If you'd like, do you have any thoughts on, on how people can, instead of planting trees, make, make Um, the biggest difference? I do, but you're not going to like them. Right, exactly. Well, um, that's the problem. Right? So there was actually, there was a great, I think it was a New Yorker article about this a few months back, that essentially what's most important in the world is our individual actions and being true to ourselves and all that stuff. Those are lovely ideas. I have no problem with those ideas. Right. They're not, however, going to address the problem of climate change. Right. You can recycle all the things. Recycling has a lot of benefits, not necessarily climate related. Um Glass recycling is probably still epically stupid. Okay. John Tierney wrote an article about this for the New York Times Magazine way back when, and it got more hate mail than anything else that man ever wrote. And if you ever followed John Tierney, he was my favorite columnist in the New York Times. He had the audacity to do some math and look at energy costs. So when you're trying to decide, should I do thing X? It's always, well, what will I do if I don't do that? Mm. So... Glass recycling as opposed to buying new glass, not really a big deal. We're not short on sand. Right. And we are short on high-quality sand, but low-quality sand goes into ga- glass, so it's really not a problem. Okay. Um, and the just the idea that recycling is always the better thing to do, that we don't need to check the numbers, because what matters is that we know we're doing the right thing. Mm. That's great for the feelings, less so for the environment. Um, and in some cases, it doesn't make sense to recycle. Because recycling is energy intensive. Also, you mentioned sort of, you know, climate fatigue, compassion fatigue. People only have a few hours or minutes a day for giving a shit. And if you spend all of that time sorting your recyclables, then think about what you can't do with that time. It may be that sorting recyclables is worth it. Right. I don't know. Yeah. But if you don't do the math, you don't know either. Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's where our gut feelings on a lot of these things can be wrong. They're they're misguided. And that's right. So in science in general, there are, I teach physics to undergrads and I sort of warn them at the beginning of each section, like this is one where your intuition is going to be pretty good. This is one where your intuition is going to be lousy. And humans have lousy intuition when it comes to probability. We are remarkably bad at it. Um, Rats have been shown to do better than humans on some really simple games of probability. Um, I have a book I can recommend on the topic if you're interested. Absolutely. It's uh, yeah, The Drunkard's Walk by Leonard Mladeno wow. is kind of my number one book to recommend on this. Uh, but yeah, humans are just not so good at, at long-term planning. Right. It's just okay. But we've gotten ourselves into the situation where honestly, we all know what the problem is. The problem is overpopulation. That's, that's, um, that's an excellent point. So, so what are your thoughts on, on some of those points where we in North America have we're in a bit of a bubble and, and we, we don't see the true cost of some of these things. So this is, again, you're not going to like any of my answers. No, I know, yeah. Which I'm so sorry about because they're really good questions. And if there were better answers, <laughs> if I knew better answers, I'd give them to you. Um, for the most part, the human costs of climate change are just things that were already happening that are going to happen more and worse. Right. And then the other big change is that this is all happening while we humans for the first time ever have this 
access to each other's lives, which is kind of creepy if you think about it. Like for most of human history, how many people could any one person have known? Mm -hmm. How many different lives could they have even imagined? Yeah, I may not really understand the life of, you know, someone who's going to lose their home in the Marshall Islands, but at least I know they exist and I can find the Marshalls on a map. So here's the thing. If you don't care, so your classic example, Bangladesh. Bangladesh is going under. It is a low-level country, physically low, right, where it is relative to the sea. So who's going to be hurt? Well, think about all the people in sweatshops. Their lives suck now so that we, you and me, can enjoy, like, our clothing and our way of doing things. Like, we know that. We know how much of our life is actually predicated on slave labor. We just don't think about it Mm -hmm. because unless you're Peter Singer, you can't get through a day that way. Right. So we compartmentalize, we, we have ways of dealing with it. Climate change just takes those problems and makes them worse. Right. If you weren't going to act because a bunch of people were living in horrific conditions in a sweatshop, why would you act just because now that sweatshop's going to be underwater? It, it's really uncomfortable stuff. It is. So is it is climate change education, is it about finding you know, a way to make people act? How do we, how do we do that? Well, for one thing, what Peter Singer does now, which took him a while to make it palatable, is he really does give up most of his salary to people in needy countries. Like he really yeah. has decided to live that way and he has gotten some other people to live that way. And I think that's amazing. He walks the walk, for sure. He walks the walk. I don't. Most of us don't. Right. So for me, the goal of climate change education is just that. I am not trying to influence people's behavior because I am not in a position to do so. So there are three and only three possible responses to climate change, and they are not mutually exclusive. We will probably do a little bit of each. We can mitigate the problem, meaning actually dealing with climate change directly, which is saying, gosh, there are a lot of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Let's not do that which means probably some combination of removing gases from the atmosphere and not putting more in. That's climate change mitigation. Um, Greenhouse gas, uh, what they call carbon capture and sequestration, if you're familiar with the idea. I'm not. It's exactly what it sounds like. You get carbon dioxide out of the air, you sequester it in rocks like serpentine. Um, I have been hearing from one of the experts in the field that it is around the corner for being commercially viable. However, I've been hearing that since 2002. But... It has always been just around the corner, and I assume it is still just around the corner. I'm not holding my breath. Um, I do not think that science is going to come in with an awesome, like, hey, we're science, we solved this. You guys are cool now. It just seems unlikely. Not impossible, just really unlikely. Um, So then the next category is adaptation. And that's things like here in New York, putting oysters back in the bay. Why oysters? Because oysters slow down the water coming in. If you put up a big seawall to prevent floods, all you do is move the flood a little to the left or a little to the right. right. And in a hundred years, your seawall will be undercut anyway. So you, you can push the problem into the future, but not far. So there, there are all of these, you know, green initiatives, sustainable cities, that stuff is all in the category of, of adaptation because it's us changing the way we do things. And then the third category is suffering. Um, climate change is going to suck tremendously for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, if fairness is your thing, it's particularly upsetting because the people who are getting the worst of it, aren't even the ones who benefited from this whole industrialization thing in the first place. It is wildly unfair, um, which upsets a lot of people, myself included, because, you know, it seems wrong. Um, 
But yeah, most of the suffering is going to be done by poor people and people of color and people living in places that you can ignore. So yeah, I told you you wouldn't like it. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. uh, Individualism is not going to save us. Um, There is no amount of individual action. Like some things just have to be done at a societal level. So what's the role of government in that type of thing? And again, I'm I'm coming at this from somebody who doesn't study this, but but doesn't stop our president. No, for sure. <laughs> I understand a fair amount about the climate system and just enough about the world economy to know that I don't understand very much about the world economy. Um that's part of the problem I think with climate change is that none of us have a big enough brain to handle all the different parts. Right. Um so I figure what I can do is handle the science side of things because that's actually the fairly easy part. This is one of the big takeaways from where climate modeling is at right now. When we make models of future climate, there's always a range of uncertainty. But the amount of uncertainty has gotten pretty small. If you decide, okay, well, humans are going to do whatever it is they're going to do. They're going to put this much carbon into the atmosphere in these years. This is what's going to happen. So these are the IPCC calls these scenarios. There's A1B. There's there's a whole bunch of them. More conservative, less conservative. Here's the problem. The range of different inputs going into these models of the what humans will do is so much larger than the uncertainty associated with any given model. Right. If you could tell me how humans were going to behave, I could tell you pretty accurately how the climate was going to behave. But given that you guys have no idea how people are going to behave. The best climate model in the world isn't going to help. Um, I mean, it'll help. It just won't help very much. Right. Um, and the uncertainty bars are getting smaller and smaller around problems that are interesting, like cloud dynamics and how you deal with, you know, adiabatic lapse rates in a dry atmosphere. Like there, there are things that are still being worked on, mostly clouds. And getting that stuff more precise is great, but it's the input that's uncertain. But the error bars from the science are getting smaller and smaller, and the error bars from humanity are staying around the same size. You're obviously very passionate, and you're a scientist, and you know how bad it is or have a very good idea of how bad it is. Is telling the the regular Joe how bad it is, does that enable them, or, or does that sort of put them in a freeze where they don't know how to react. They just, they, they, they close their circle so that no, now it's just about me and my family and my job. I can't, you know, it's too much to think about the, the bigger picture. I think that does happen. I think it depends on the individual. Um, and it depends on the context in which you tell them. Hmm. So definitely there's this, you know, when, when I was a kid and I took like environmental science, I remember being very confused because What I got from the class was, and this was back in the time when we were afraid of peak oil, we're going to run out of oil, which like now we're like, we wish we would run out of oil. (laughs) If we would run out of oil, that would solve the problem. Like we'd be done. We'd figure something out. But no, sadly, we're not running out of oil. But I had this, this picture of people being really bad. I was in middle school and we're like learning about, you know, baby seals being clubbed. And I'm thinking people are the worst. But then I think of the people I know and like, my friends are actually really awesome. So either there's something really statistically unlikely going on, or it's a little more complicated than that. And I think presenting things as, well, people are just really bad, might be true, but isn't helpful. Right. Um, And also, I kind of feel like everyone, I'm going to leave the moral judgments to those who are a little bit more qualified to make them. Right. 
Um, so that's actually part of why I do some of my stuff as a mermaid, um, <laughs> is trying to, in some ways, make it less serious and let people engage with the information without making it personal right away. Just, hey, this is a bunch of stuff. Let's see what we can do with it. Right. Um, and I think, you know, probably, like, what's going to happen? Probably things are going to suck for a lot of people and then eventually level out and be kind of okay for a lot of people. It's just the numbers we're not sure about. So, but certainly many people will suffer and die pretty awful deaths that they wouldn't have died otherwise. But that's been true of our civilization for kind of the whole time. Yeah. So I, I really think that a lot of climate change's issues have nothing to do with climate. They have to do with globalization and the fact that you can't unknow things. That's a good point. That's a great point. Like on the Silk Road, you didn't know what conditions the people on the other end were living in and you had no way of finding out even if you wanted to know but now you know okay so are we when we look at climate change are we is your take a bit of uh, there's going to be a lot of suffering it's going to cost a lot of money and, and lives but as a species we're going to adapt and make it through and find a way or do you think there is a chance that you know, come three, five hundred years or less that we just the planet won't be habitable for, you know, homo sapiens. I mean, my first answer is prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Um, certainly, we are in the middle of another great extinction. Right. Um, and I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more natural than a huge extinction. What could be more natural than 95 percent of all life dying? Right. That's happened so many times in the past. I suspect it will continue to happen in the future. Absolutely. This is the problem of the naturalistic fallacy. This is part of why I don't get along with environmentalists, because when they're like, oh, but it's natural. I'm like, yeah, like dying in childbirth. Yeah. Which is about the most natural thing a human can do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's not pleasant. I'm not saying I want these no, things to be no. the case. I'm saying based on the information currently available to me. Yeah. That's that's more the norm than than not if you look at, you know, the life of our species. That's right. I mean, humans have been really into slavery for a very long time. Our oldest codes include a set of rules for regular people and a set of rules for slaves. So, like, are we improving? I think kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But like not, at you know, a spectacular rate. And I don't see that rate changing dramatically. Um, but there will always be winners and losers in any upheaval. And Canada probably has more winners than most places Yeah, because except in the far north where you've got the native populations, but like how long has Canada been screwing over its native population? So now there won't be any ice for them to live on. What difference does it make? They've been screwed over this whole time. They're just going to get more screwed over. Right. Um, but most Canadians live in a place where if anything, their land will become more valuable as, um, you can farm further and further north and, you know, you have to go further north if you're cold tolerant. Uh, so a lot of species have to move further, further poleward. So north here or south, um, you know, if, if you own a harbor in Alaska, global warming is great for you. You're going to make bank. <laughs> Who am I to tell you otherwise? Um, like, there are always winners and losers. So and why, what's your fascination with, climate change. So basically, give me an idea of what the difference is between climate and weather. And then 
tell me sort of why why is this such a passion for you and you've you know, you've obviously you've, you you have your PhD in what ocean, is, and, ocean climate and climate physics. physics. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is something that you've chosen to do. Why have you done that? <laughs> I ask myself that every day. Um, so, first, climate and weather. Um, probably the one that I did in our Earth's future actually comes from a wonderful woman named Heidi Cullen, um, who. She's where I heard, first heard this from. You build your house for your, for the climate, but you dress for the weather. So I've also heard climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And those, are, I think, are, are really useful ways to think about it. Another useful way to think about it that I've been focusing on more recently is that weather is the thing that occurs outside your window. Weather is a thing that can be measured. It involves things like precipitation, humidity, temperature. It's a bunch of variables. And you know what's happening because you can look outside your window and see the weather. And for things that can't be seen, you can use equipment to measure it. Hmm. Weather is real in a fundamental sense. Climate isn't real. Climate is a is an average. It is a mathematical construct. It's sort of like that family that has, you know, 2.5 children. Right. Nobody has 2.5 children. So climate is the average. Um, the great mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot said that since he was born in France and educated in Poland, he was German on average. Um, and it's, it's sort of like that, right? So climate is a really useful thing, but it isn't real in the sense that weather is. Right. Now, of course, I can't say that because if I said that, people would be like, oh my God, climate isn't real. That means climate change isn't real and, and it's a hoax. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't really want to be part of that. Um, but climate, what I will say is that climate is a mathematical construct. Right. It is really useful. Mm-hmm. for keeping track of things. But it isn't a thing. Right. Um, and the term climate change, we just kind of got stuck with. Mm-hmm. Climate change and global warming, some people are very, very into them meaning different things. The terms were used, have been used interchangeably a bunch of times. If you have to blame one person, it would be Wally Broker, who used the term global warming in a paper, and it like became the name. So science has only very recently started having like branding. Right. And people who, who know how to present things. Um, like the term greenhouse gas, coined by Niels Ekstrom, who I'm pretty sure had never seen a greenhouse. Um, the way greenhouse gases work has almost nothing in common with the way greenhouses work. If you know how a greenhouse works, you are at a disadvantage when you're starting to study climate. Huh? Because you foolishly think that there's a connection between literal greenhouses and greenhouse gases. There is in the sense that both keep things warm. But like that's also the case with sweaters, blankets. Um, and blanket is actually a much better metaphor than greenhouse. Oh, right. Because, you know, like if it's cold and you're snuggled up under the blanket, like it's warmer under the blanket. Right. But as a result, it's a little bit colder on the outside of the blanket. That's pretty much the atmosphere. Right. Layers of blankets. Um, but we got stuck with the term greenhouse gas because Norwegians, I don't know. Um, and so we have a lot of this in science where the names of things are just ridiculous. Right. And they they create this barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, how I got into it is really also kind of stupid. Um, when I was an undergrad, I took a class in climate because it fit into my schedule. And it was in the environmental science major. And I had a vague sense of wanting to do something involving, you know, the world and animals. And it was about that specific. Um, and I fell in love. It was the first genuinely difficult thing I'd ever done that wasn't someone trying to make something difficult 
And so climate, I just, I remember it was the topic of Coriolis. It was trying to understand what's going on on the earth while the earth is rotating. And it, it's hard. It's really hard to wrap your head around. It makes you realize how difficult and complicated and wonderful things are. And I fell in love and the teacher hired me that summer. And I've since hired her for things as well, which is kind of cool. cool. And uh, they shipped me out to a place called the Biosphere, which was the best thing Columbia University ever had. Um, But I decided I wanted to study climate. And at the time, and even eh, probably not anymore, but at the time, climate grad programs were really, they weren't sure if they were atmospheric science or if they were oceanography. So I didn't want to be in a new program. I didn't want to be in a hybrid anything because the reason I went to graduate school is that my, my mentor said, it's good that you're interested in everything, but you risk becoming a dilettante, get a PhD in the hard sciences and then do whatever the hell you like. Right. So, uh, so the last thing I wanted to do was deal with, you know, a new department that wasn't sure what it was. Um, and the oceanographers travel and the atmospheric scientists do not. So I said, well, this is an IQ test. Um, sign me up. And I, you know, went to grad school, saw the world. I traveled all over on research ships and got, you know, some really interesting firsthand experiences of how science works around the world. So do you see yourself these days as an educator primarily, or are you doing, are you still doing a lot of research? Um, right now I'm primarily an educator. I'm at the moment, most of my work is in education. So I, I kind of ended up finding my niche at the American Museum of Natural History, which everyone who knows me is like, well, yeah, of course you would. Mm. Um, it's beyond a dream job working there. They hired me because they had a, a grant for doing climate change education classes that would be after hours at the museum. That was all the direction I got. And I have a lot of experience in informal climate change education only because I was one of the people who started doing it when everyone thought we were nuts. Mm. So like this idea of, hey, let's make science accessible to normal people. And people thought I was just insane when I started doing this. They're like, oh, I'm going to get up at a nightclub and talk about climate change for a couple minutes. Right. Nobody was doing that. Now people are doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. I did TEDx Black Rock City, right? So when I started doing this stuff, that was not a thing. Right. Um, so I've ended up doing most of my, what I do now is teacher training. I do professional development. Oh. Um, yeah. So the museum, American museum of natural history has a master's program in uh, science education. And so I co-teach the climate and weather section oh. and I teach at college level also. And I do, um, the museum also has an online program for teachers who are currently in service who want to learn specifically climate change or oceanography or one of those fields. And I do those classes. Um, and then I do, so a lot of, some of that is considered informal science education. And then there's the category that I call very informal science education, which brings me to the mermaid lagoon. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you sort of the, how it came to be and where we're at because we just got confirmation on the space. February 3rd, 2018 is going to be the eighth annual Mermaid Lagoon. It's like the eighth annual, but it's been about nine years, 10 years. Uh, so it started the BP oil spill. My friend, Kyle Tare, who's, you can, you can Google her. She's a singer, songwriter, shaman, perform. She's lovely. Anyway, uh, she had already planned to do an ocean fundraiser before the oil spill, but then the oil spill happened. So that became the focus. And she had all these questions for me about where the oil was going to end up. 
And I said, oh, yeah, you should tell people this. You should tell people that. And she and I were in a dance class together. That was how I knew her. And finally, she said, you know, I'm not going to tell people that. You should tell people that. I was like, but Kai, you know, they're they're coming to see you sing. And, like, we have the fire performers. It was in what at the time was an illegal underground venue. I mean, when I say we had people swinging from the ceilings, I mean that entirely literally. Because um, the place is sort of run by aerialists. So it was like this crazy variety show fundraiser. And she kind of christened me Dr. Mermaid because I was finishing up my PhD and I was belly dancing all the time. Belly dancers, oceanographers, mermaids. Perfect. So I became Dr. Mermaid and like I literally had to get up on stage right after the burlesque performer. And I was like, hi, I'm Dr. Mermaid. Let me tell you stuff. And I did. Um, and it worked. So we kept doing it. Um, it's me, Kyle Tear, and Ali Luminescent, who's a performer of many trades. I, I don't, I don't want to limit her to a category. Um, but like the last time I needed a stilt walking cephalopod, she was the person I called. Um, so the three of us have been doing the Mermaid Lagoon every year and our original venue got shut down and then we were in another venue and then our venue reopened, although they hadn't actually opened yet. We did the seventh annual in the venue, like as it was reopening. So it wasn't quite set up yet. The crazy thing is that this venue, now that it's totally legit, is like kind of a big deal. Um, and to be able to do an educational event there just wouldn't happen now. I mean, they're, if you look in the New York times, like their stuff gets listed They're They're the cool kids in Brooklyn now. So I'm going to, be allowed to run educational programming at a club on a Saturday night for a packed house. So the first part will be like a, they always do a variety show. Um, generally pretty scandalous. That's the way they go. We're going to go with a, an ocean theme. The theme is Arctic Atlantis. And then for the dance party part of the night, any educational stuff that I set up that like can just stay in place will stay and they're going to stay on theme. And the, so it's funny because Kay chose Arctic Atlantis. I don't actually know why, but in some ways the Arctic really is our Atlantis because it really is going under and it really is going to destroy civilizations. Uh, so I think without knowing it, she picked like really the most perfect theme. So the idea is to really boil it down to one or two things that I want to get through and have just, you know, really clear messaging, really be on point and then have more available if people want more. But um, sometimes when I get asked to do this sort of thing, people are like, oh, you can talk for 10 minutes. And I'm like, nope, I will talk for three minutes. Okay. Three minutes of science is really enough in, in non-science contexts. Right. But you're doing it in a pretty fun and engaging way, right? It's very interesting. So I mean, because then everyone will remember, oh, wow, there's crazy stuff happening in the Arctic. Yeah. Um. Which is my goal. I don't need anyone in the audience to be like, you know, I think I really understand how an adiabatic lapse rate works. Not going for that. So informal science education is is a is kind of the wild west because I, I know we're making it up as we're going along. I was an invited speaker for a a thing on informal science education, and I was like, I, I so being an invited speaker implies that you're like the one who's opening the session, mm-hmm. and it was really just because I've been doing this longer than anyone. Because my friends and I are nuts and have been and I've been part of artistic communities that are like, yeah, this is a great idea. So all, I used to try to keep all the things I do separate and then I just gave up. And so now I'm here. Excellent. I love it. That's great. Mostly it works. Yeah. Wow. 
I got into climate change because I thought it was interesting. And I still think it's interesting. And I think that the climate system is just this really cool thing. Um, but the problems with understanding the climate system are that climate is part of a complex system. Mm-hmm. And we all use, for example, our phones every day. And what's weird is that you can use your phone and still not know what a transducer is. Right. Like, you, you don't have to know anything about how it works. It just works. Right. And so we, we get used to this idea of, like, the black box. And people sometimes say, well, you know, why, why are you concerned about climate change? Climate has changed in the past. And the response is, that's why I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. If in the past, climate had stayed steady, while, you know, the solar cycles went on and the Earth's orbit shifted, if the climate had stayed steady, I'd be like, yeah, climate's the kind of thing that stays steady. It's, it's tough. It, you know, it picks a root and it sticks to it. Um, but that's not how our climate behaves. Our climate you know, we'll go along doing one thing and then all of a sudden do something wildly different. And the math that was developed to handle this is chaos theory. Um, the history of computers and the history of chaos and the history of climate are all squished in together um, because computers were kind of invented for predicting the weather. Right. The idea being, if you just have enough information, you can make these predictions. And the lesson of chaos is it doesn't work that way. If we had the best computers in the world and we had all the information we could possibly want, you still wouldn't be able to predict weather more than two weeks out. It is the nature of the system. Right. I remember the movie Jurassic Park. Yes. And he talked about chaos theory. So unfortunately, I have to unteach Michael Crichton's version of chaos theory before I can like teach the actual math, which is easier than the stuff that like Crichton babbles on about. You can get ridiculous levels of complexity from really simple instructions. And people have trouble believing that, which is why um, there's something called the Mandelbrot set, which I can send you. But there are all these mathematical things where you can get just all this complexity from like two lines of instruction. And that's the nature of our system. So the way that chaos theory was discovered, the way sort of a lot of this came about, a guy was running one of the earliest climate models and then had stopped it and restarted it because he wanted to check something. And he he looked at his results. And they were wildly different than the other version. And he was like, shit, it's not working, right? Because it's a computer. Computers, we're sure, are deterministic, right? They cannot make things up. Right. So he was baffled. He went back, nothing wrong with the code. Eventually, he found that there was a number, like because he had paused and restarted, he'd fed in that round of new information. And normally, they're fed in as six-digit integers, 0.034517. And the six-digit integer got truncated to a four-digit integer. That couldn't possibly make a big difference, right? You make a little change, you expect a little difference. Right. That's not what happens. You make a little change, you get something wildly, completely not remotely what you thought. That is what is referred to as the butterfly effect. It probably does not mean that a butterfly can flap its wings in Tokyo and there's a storm in New York. While that is not literally true, it does have some value because the climate is arbitrarily sensitive to small changes. Mm. So it's that idea of arbitrary sensitivity. It doesn't matter how close you zoom in. It'll still be just obnoxiously, ridiculously sensitive to small changes. That is the nature of the universe. And that's not, you know, I, I think most of us would prefer that nature not behave that way. Yeah, be a little bit more predictable, be easier to uh, prepare for, right? Yeah, um, but as far back as, okay, I'm bad with years, but whenever Bertrand Russell was doing Bertrand Russell things, um, he pointed out that we live in a probabilistic world. 
And the only way to behave rationally in a probabilistic world is to consider probabilities. Right. Um, and so people hear uncertainty and they think, oh, uncertainty, like when you're not sure. But that's not what uncertainty is in science. It's just unfortunate that we got stuck with this term, like uncertainty. No one likes that word. Um, but uncertainty in science, it can mean I'm not sure. But in some cases, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, uncertainty about climate isn't the result of us not knowing enough. It's not like if we knew more, we'd be more certain. There is uncertainty inherent in the system. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that. Well, I think you're doing a great job. Um, Thank you. Um, one of the things that I think of in terms of science is this idea. We've, we've kind of backed ourselves into this corner where people who weren't good at math in middle school are somehow like, oh, I'm not a science person. People say I'm not a science person. As if like some people are tall, some people are short, some people are science. No one has trouble with the idea that someone who can't sing might go to the opera, right? Anyone can like the opera. That's okay. But we have this idea that science is its own like little pristine thing. Um, and I think we got that way because science, the first step in the scientific method is obtain funding. And if you teach scientific method without teaching that, I think you're doing your audience a disservice. Mm -hmm. Because historically, science has been a thing that was done by people who could afford to do it. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you might have heard we have kind of a gender issue. We have some diversity issues. You might have heard. Well, is that changing? What? Is that changing, the, the sure. gender? It's changing. Not at any great speed. No. Um, so I do think things are changing, but slowly. Slowly, yeah. Too slowly. Real slowly. Um, and particularly for Canada, you guys have the issue that a lot of the people being most affected are in the Arctic and they are indigenous communities mm -hmm. and they've been ignored by everyone. Um, so now there are some, there's some interest in partnerships between scientific communities and indigenous communities and it seems to be working. Sometimes it seems like kind of bypass the government, but, um, well, because the people on the ground are the ones who know what's going on. Yep. And it's a little silly for scientists, you know, in their various ivory towers to be telling Inuit, you know, how things are going to affect their lives unless that scientist has lived as an Inuit. Like, you just don't know. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the big Arctic-Antarctic differences. Mm. Wonderful thing about the Antarctic is no one's native. Um, but the Arctic is home to some really amazing communities and just crazy, wonderful, fascinating history. And in this part of the world, those are the people who are going to get screwed first. Yeah, you're right. Well, that's uh, that's a good uh, something to think about for sure. You know, just just who's being affected, like you say, because you know the richest people are are always going to be have some place to go and have exactly have, uh, be 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 safe um, or find a way. But yeah, the people that are already suffering are going to suffer even more. I work with a group in the South Bronx, which is one of the poorest parts of New York. Uh, when you hear inner city, they're talking about the South Bronx. Mm. And those kids who I worked with, they know that nobody cares about them. Mm. And they know that if Hurricane Sandy had hit 12 hours earlier or 12 hours later, the flooding would have been in the South Bronx, not in lower Manhattan. And the South Bronx is at risk for flooding, but almost nobody has any waterfront access because it's all industrial. Again, it's that worst, worst of both worlds situation. And things like heat waves disproportionately hit the poor. Um, if you if you have access to air conditioning, even just at night, and your body temperature can go down, you're way more likely to survive a heat wave. It's the un, 
the unbroken heat. Um, people who are more likely to live in walk-ups, which in New York like is still totally a thing. If you live in a fifth-floor walk-up, you're going to be screwed in case of most climate change issues. And you're going to be more screwed than your neighbor on the Upper East Side who lives in an elevator building. Right. And, you know, we, we kind of got ourselves into this. Like, n- none of this should be surprising. Yeah. I always I, I want to have something positive to end on, but I, I never really do. Well, that's a, let's talk a, a little bit more about Dr. Mermaid then. Yeah, it's, just, it's sort of it's, it's my playa name. It's my alter ego. It's just kind of my thing. Yeah, so so tell me more about what happens when you put on the Dr. Mermaid persona. Um, I will tell you, so I, I, at one point in an educational thing, got some pushback on the, the Dr. Mermaid concept, of course, because you might have heard mermaids aren't real. And I said, oh, yes. Do you feel the same way about um, the science of Star Wars comic book panels? And I did a quick Google search, you know, science of Star Trek turns up three or four different books. I said, do you, do you have the same problem with those? or the people who figured out like the science of the game of Thrones. I said, do you have the same problem with that? Oh no. I said, okay. So I want you to come up with a difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing. That doesn't include, but mermaids are for girls. Mm -hmm. So I piss off everyone doing this because the, the straight science types want, you know, can't talk about mermaids. Mermaids aren't real. And we are scientists and we, we only ever talk about things that are real because science is separate than the rest of your life. No, it isn't. Um, if you can't tell the difference between like the mermaid stuff and the not mermaid stuff, I can't help you. Um, but generally, so it's, it's me and my co-producers and we are looking at it from the point of view of where the mermaids, um, we feel really bad for the humans. We, Mm. the idea is to sort of take an outside perspective um, our mermaids are sort of amoral and somewhat timeless, and we're all over the place. I love but it. I love that. Yeah. Watching the humans, and we're like, damn, that's really stupid. Because it's not like we have some plan that we're doing that's going to screw over some people, but like we've decided it's worth it in the end. That's not what humanity is doing. We're fucking around. We're screwing one another over. We're saying that we have a set of morals that we do not remotely live by and so the mermaids are like seriously how could you screw this much up um so the idea is that one of the original sort of conceits is the mermaids are pissed about climate change um because it's it's messing with our oceans and our it's our home um and we also one of our things from the beginning has been getting cetaceans out of tanks and into the open ocean Mm. uh the idea of orcas at sea world um, and Lolita, who is a particular orca whose story we've been involved with in the beginning, actually looks like she might end up getting to retire. Um, orcas are incredibly bright social animals. Turns out if you keep them in swimming pools, like what, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Like, if you play one of them, the sound of its mother, 20 years later, it remembers. Yeah. It's, it's, ugh, it's awful. Um, but, you know, science is really interesting. Like, if you think about it, science began as a leisure activity for rich white men. Right. If rich white men have one thing going for them, it's good taste in leisure activities. <laughs> so think about it. Nobody got into science because I mean, nobody started in science because their mother said, oh, you should grow up to be a doctor. Right. Nobody wanted their kid to grow up to be a scientist. It's curiosity, right? It's curiosity and it's kind of an interest in, in how the world works. It's not right. So science isn't a list of information. It's a way of doing things. And there's a lot of, I feel, choosing sides these days where Mm. 
if you want to be science, then you have to be consistent. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, staking out our territory. And if, if you're a science person, you have to be all these other things. Right. Um, and that's a lot of where climate change denial has gone bonkers in the U.S., where it's become part of identity politics. People identify as someone who doesn't believe in climate change. Mm. And I, I just kind of want us to, to take a step back from the, this is my position and, and these are the boundaries of it and this is okay and this isn't okay to like, huh, isn't the world weird? Yeah, it kind of sucks that some of the stuff is happening. Probably we should make less of it happen. Often I'm asked if I believe in climate change and I say, you know, no, I believe in the essential goodness of humans. I'm just overwhelmed by the evidence for climate change. It's not the same thing. Right. Um, because evidence could change my mind. Right. And that's, that is the key difference mm -hmm. between science and not science is, okay, but with the right information, would you change your mind? And the beautiful thing about belief is that, no, you wouldn't. Because that's actually the point. Yeah. But the wonderful thing about science, it's, it's actually less of a cognitive load because you don't have to believe anything. Yeah. I just, you know, I'm reasonably, I'm convinced by the evidence. Maybe tomorrow there'll be different evidence. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But so far, the evidence is really compelling. Right. And so that's, you know, kind of what I do as Dr. Mermaid and, and try to get people not to be so afraid of talking about climate change because it's gotten so contentious. People are afraid to say anything because they might not know everything and then someone else will tell them why they're wrong and people hate being told why they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So better not to say anything. But then we end up with a situation where climate change is the elephant in the room and the only people who talk about it are the uninformed who feel like it. Right. On February 3rd, we will be hosting the 8th Annual Mermaid Lagoon at the House of Yes in Brooklyn in New York. You're all invited to come. Uh, there will be a educational and entertaining show uh, early in the evening and then oceanic-themed dancing until 4 in the morning. Wonderful. Dr. Deborah Tillinger, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully we can do this again another time. You're welcome. Thank you. Life Imperative is an independent podcast produced by Toronto photographer Scott Lalonde. For more information about the Life Imperative podcast, subscribe on iTunes or visit my website at scottlalonde.com. Thank you for listening.